Welcome to another episode of the Evidence into Action EEF podcast. We're really delighted to go back to the topic of literacy for this podcast. And we want to narrow in and really emphasize a focus on reading once more, but this time looking more narrowly at reading fluency. And we're really pleased we've got well-renowned expert in Professor Tim Rosinski, and we've also got colleagues who are expert in putting this into practice in the classroom. So we hope you'll get lots from this podcast. My co-host, uh, returning co-host, is um, Sarah Green. Sarah? Hi, Alex. Nice to be back. <laughs> Those of you who don't know me, I'm the content specialist for literacy. But I'm also um, an assistant head in a school in Manchester in my, in my normal day job. Um, and I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, always a busy week, Sarah, uh, jumping between different roles and, and grappling with, with the work. Thank you. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce, I'm really quite excited, actually, because I've read um, Tim's work for a number of years now and follow it closely. I want to introduce Professor Tim Brzezinski, um, who is really kindly um, coming over from the US and not literally coming over on plane, but just communicating um, across the pond um, to share his expertise. Tim, could you introduce yourself, please, and your background? Hi, Alex and uh, Sarah. Thanks for having me on uh, your podcast. It's really a um, distinct honor to uh, be speaking in the UK, where I know we have some great uh, literacy specialists, uh, teachers of reading and, and such. Um, as Alex mentioned, my name is Tim Rosinski. I'm a professor of literacy education at uh, Kent State University here in Ohio in the, in the United States. Um, I've been working on reading fluency well, for many, many years. Uh, first started actually as a, as a teacher, working as an interventionist in Omaha, Nebraska years ago, uh, working with kids who were having difficulty in reading. And I was doing everything that the um, professors uh, told us to do in the education courses I was taking, uh, working on phonics, uh, working on comprehension, working on vocabulary. But some of these students were just not making much progress. And it was then I was taking my master's degree courses at the university, and um, the professors had us reading some of these articles that were just beginning to appear about reading fluency. One of them was called Fluency, the Neglected Goal, the Reading Program. Another was called uh, The Method of Repeated Readings by Dr. J. Samuels. Another one was called After Decoding, Then What? Carol Chomsky wrote, about what, what do you do when you teach kids phonics, but they still don't make any progress? And her answer was fluency. So I began to use some of these methods they were talking about, repeated readings, assisted reading, and so on. And lo and behold, I found these children I was working with began to make progress. The ones who were not making minimal progress before began to take off. And in some cases, it was really quite breathtaking. So I got on that bandwagon, if you will, 40 odd years ago, and I've been on it ever since. You mentioned there the science of reading. I think actually there is no more important area of science in terms of for what we know about children development and the importance of reading. I think you know putting it on that pedestal is really crucial. And I know there are debates that attend reading and the science of reading particularly, and some of them are quite contentious. Um, I think what's interesting with reading fluency, there seems to be less contention. I think there seems to be a, a common agreement that the importance of fluency um, which, it, which is a really useful starting point. It, I, yes, I, I, I agree with you that fluency has been recognized ever since the National Reading Panel here in the United States identified it. Uh, the problem becomes, however, when it's been misinterpreted in many, in many ways and misunderstood, I think. 
Uh, it's not making children read fast. It's not uh, having kids only read orally. Um, and, and some of these misconceptions have led to some um, instructional approaches that I think are not working out the way they should with our students. Can I just ask a specific follow-up then on the, the pace misconception? Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of teachers, they use words per minute as a bit of a proxy. What are your thoughts on that as a, as a useful proxy, its limitations? It's a very useful proxy. We know that it, there's, there's a high correlation between speed of reading and comprehension. Uh, all the way into high school. In fact, we just uh, did a study a few years ago where we could predict our college students reading comprehension uh, simply by words correct per minute. But the problem is, how do you get kids to, to, to improve their speed of reading? Uh, as you said, it's a proxy. It is not the same thing. I want children to become fast readers, but I want them to become fast the way you and I became fast. Uh, and that's, we read a lot, right? We practiced and naturally, as we read more and more, our ability to read uh, words automatically uh, or, uh, increased, and so did our, our speed of reading at the same time. So it's, it's a useful tool, but it's not the method of instruction. The method of instruction is repeated readings, assisted reading, these fluency methods that have been shown by the research uh, to actually work with our students. Thanks, Tim. It's really interesting to listen to. I find, um, feel really privileged to be here talking to you today. Interestingly, you started to talk then about um, something called automaticity. And mm -hmm. there'll be, you know, lots of colleagues um, over in England and the UK that will be familiar with that kind of language. But for those who aren't, how would you define what reading fluency is? Obviously, okay. automaticity is part of that. But what are all the building blocks that go into being a fluent reader? Yeah, great, great question, Sarah. I think I got a little ahead of myself. Um, what is fluency? Well, that's that that's part of the problem. Uh, is that it's not it's a multi-component dimension, multi-component um, uh, concept. Uh, the first is this idea of automaticity and word recognition. It's the ability to re read words not just accurately, but 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 effortlessly or automatically. Uh, the theory comes from the work of uh, David LeBurge and Jay Samuels. We talked about this notion of automaticity in uh, information processing. What they say is that our brains, if you will, our minds, we have, we, we can do great things, solve problems, make works of art, but we have a certain limitations. And one of those biggest limitations is the ability to do multiple tasks simultaneously. You know, teachers, you know, those of you who are listening, you know, you do this all the time, try to do two, three, four things at the same time. And what happens is you usually mess up at at least one of them. And see, that's the problem in reading. Reading is a multitask activity. Uh, there's at least two things a reader has to do when they read. First of all, is they need to decode the words, right? But the more important task is they need to be able to make sense out of that text to comprehend. Well, the point is, if you have to use too much of your mental energy, if you will, that limited mental energy to decode the words while you're reading, you get over to that other task, which is comprehension, and you've, you, don't comp you don't understand as well what you've read. And the reason is you've used up so much of that mental energy decoding words. What we want our students to do is not just become accurate in their word recognition, phonics, if you will. We want them to become automatic, effortless. And I think you and I were probably the best examples of that when we read. How often do we have to stop and sound out a word? Think about the meaning to a word. You know, most of the words we encounter, they're, they're automatically recognized. They're sight words. 
And the significance of that is that we can then, because we give minimal attention to the decoding aspect, we can give maximum attention to word, uh, not word, de uh, word decoding, but comprehension, making sense out of the text. So that's the automaticity component. And we get that develop automaticity through the way we develop automaticity in anything. Lots and lots and lots of practice, guided practice. But then there's this other component of fluency. We, uh, the technical term is prosody. Uh, I like to use the word expression. If I think about somebody who's a fluent reader, it's not somebody who or is fluent speaker. It's not somebody who reads or talks fast. It's somebody who uses their voice to make meaning. They get loud, they get soft, they get fast, they get slow, they have dramatic pauses. And all those things add to the meaning of the text there. And, and what we know is that that readers who, when they read orally, read with good expression, when they read silently, they tend to be our best comprehenders. Because what you're doing when you read with expression or prosody is you're monitoring the meaning of the text so that your voice actually uh, um, reflects you know, the, the meaning that the author is trying to provide. So it's actually these two, two concepts kind of folded into fluency. The automaticity component, which is the link to word recognition, but then the prosody or expression component, which is your link to comprehension. That's why fluency has often been called the bridge between word recognition and comprehension. It's not one, it's not the other, it's, it's both of those concepts. And we need to work on, on both of those at the same time with our students. Thanks, Tim. Wow. I mean, I think that would be incredibly useful um, for teachers and leaders, you know, up and down the country. I suppose once you've got that understanding of what fluency actually is and you've kind of um, kind of dispelled some of the myths around, you know, what it is and what it isn't, where do you start then as a classroom teacher or a leader? You know, you, mm -hmm. we know that there's probably going to be an issue to be dealt with um, mm -hmm. in schools, but where, where do teachers start with this? <laughs> um, yeah, great question again, Sarah. Um, well, uh, what we want to do is our tools for developing fluency are the way I see them is there's, we have three basic tools. Num number one, modeling fluent reading for our students. Uh, number two, reading with our students together. And number three, having our students practice or engage in repeated reading. So those are the tools. So uh, uh, at our earliest stages, where children are just entering into the school system, teachers could be reading to our kid children. We know the importance of read aloud. Uh, children who are read aloud have better comprehension. They have larger vocabularies. They're more enthusiastic about reading. But also when we read to students, we're modeling for them the way we want them to read on, on their own. Oftentimes when I read to students and I try to read to them every time I'm in, in a classroom, we not only talk about what I read, but we also talk about how I read it. Did you notice how I changed my voice when I became a different character? What were you thinking when I had this long dramatic pause? And I want them to notice that I was using my voice, you know, to improve their satisfaction and understanding with the text. So that would be the first thing. Once kids, of course, when we read to kids, we're doing the reading, the children are not. So we eventually need to get students to the point where they're actually doing the reading. So the second tool that we in our, in our tool bag is what we call assisted reading. That's where students read something and they hear it read to them at the same time by a, by a fluent reader. And this could take a variety of, of, uh, 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 of ways of implementing this. Uh, perhaps the most common way in our, with our earliest students are uh, 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 choral reading, reading something together. I'm not a good reader, but uh, you and Alex are, and we read something together. I'll eventually be able to read that text uh, 
uh, with, you know, on my own without your help. But it also could be uh, what we call paired reading. Um, Keith Topping, University of Dundee, up uh, in your, your neck of the woods there, uh, has done some remarkable work in the 1980s and 90s with paired reading where you'd sit side by side. A parent or a student or, or a teacher would sit with a child and read out loud together. And he found remarkable progress, not just in terms of fluency, but also in terms of comprehension, this process of reading al along with a partner. I think the work at, at the uh, uh, Hertz uh, has also been shown to be, show great promise with, with that. But even things such as reading a text while listening to a recorded version. Uh, that, uh, again, we, we see evidence of this. I, I mentioned earlier my, uh, my reading of Carol Chomsky. Uh, she worked, uh, she, she was an interventionist in Boston years ago and uh, taught her children phonics and they weren't making much progress. So what happened was she would record texts for her students to read uh, with her own voice and then would give the students the, uh, uh, the text and, and, and the recording, you know, a little cassette tape and, and told the kids, come back and see me when you can read this without the help of the, of the recording. And she was amazed. What she found was in, in I believe it was uh, a four-month intervention, the students made eight, eight months progress in reading. Now, not just in terms of reading fast, but reading with better comprehension. And then there's caption television. Um, we all know what caption television is here in the UK and the US. Uh, when students watch a, a television program that has captions in it, they're, they're hearing the text and they're seeing the text at the same time. So in a sense, it's a version of assisted reading here. And there's a growing body of evidence to suggest there is a, a, a lot to say about this. Uh, one of the classic books here in the U.S. is one by Jim Trelease. It's called The Read Aloud Handbook. And I still remember him saying, writing years ago how Finland had some of the highest achieving young students in the world in terms of literacy development. And one of his claims was that in, in Finland, all the television programs are captioned. And he claimed that that perhaps is one of the reasons their students have done so well. And of course, now that we've been, been in this pandemic now for almost two years, you know, and we have children who are in different environments, this is something that could easily be put, uh, uh, put to use uh, by parents, by teachers to help our children and with literally no cost at all. You know, TVs, caption television is, uh, is, is, is free and easily available. But then there's the, this third. So I mentioned the idea of modeling uh, the assisted reading. And then the third one is this repeated reading. Uh, Dr. Jay Samuels wrote, wrote about this back in, I believe it was 1979, the method of repeated readings. And what he found was that when students read a text, not once, but two, three, four times to the point where they began to approach the way a proficient reader would read that text, of course, they improved not only on that text that they read, but then there was a carryover or a generalization when the students moved on to a new text they have never seen before, there were vestiges of improvement in that new text as well. And, and so getting our students to do this sort of practice, um, you know, is, is really essential uh, for improving their fluency. Now, the problem with that, though, is how do, you, how do, you, how do teachers actually get students to um, read something two or three, four or five times? Uh, you say, you students, read this five times, tell me when you're done. I, I think you'll have students rolling their eyes, looking at you saying, why? This is where I think the art of teaching comes in. You know, we talk about the science of teaching reading, but I think there's an art 
Why would anybody want to read something repeatedly? Why would anybody want to read something and listen to somebody read it with them at the same time? To me, the answer is the artful answer is performance. If you've ever been in a play or recited a poem at a poetry slam or a coffee house, you're probably rehearsed. And you know, if you didn't, I bet you wish you had. Uh, and what is that rehearsal aimed at? Well, you're practicing a text, not to read it fast, but you're practicing it to get it to a point where when you do read it out loud for an audience, you're providing for them uh, what would be a meaningful uh, and satisfactory performance that they would find enjoyable and satisfying uh, there. So the practice isn't aimed at speed. The practice is aimed at meaning here. So, and, and then that leads to the next question. Are there certain texts that are meant to be read out loud, meant to be performed for an audience? And again, what, what I find myself getting into is more of these artful texts, poetry, reader's theater texts, uh, song. We've been doing every day in our reading clinic, we start with a song, always with the words in front of the children. Um, but, you know, it's a great way of getting kids enthusiastic about reading uh, and getting them to want to read something multiple times. You know, our young people today call them earworms, you know, where you get a, a song in your head and you can't, you can't get it out. You're thinking about it all day long, right? Singing it to yourself. It's a natural repeated text for our students, scientific and artful at the same time. Interesting, Tim, you're talking about lots of kind of narrative texts there. What about um, kind of instructional text, information text, uh, nonfiction? What role does fluency play in, in looking and reading those texts? Well, uh, certainly, um, you know, fluency crosses the boundaries. You need to be a fluent reader for all these texts. Um, and certainly, we, we should be including informational text in our, um, in our, in our students' instructional read, uh, fluency instruction. Um, the, the challenge, though, is to find those informational texts that lend themselves to um, prosodic reading or expressive reading. Um, sometimes that can be a challenge. And so we need to find ways of, of integrating those, uh, all these texts in, into, our, into our curriculum. Um, I often, one of the things we've been using a lot of here in our own reading clinic has, have been uh, oratory speeches, um, taking speeches from American history, British history, and having kids practice and perform it. And of course, those things easily can lend themselves into uh, uh, studies of, of, of social studies and uh, history and, and, and such. So, you know, that, that again, that's I, I like to call that the art. That's where as teachers, we need to find that sweet spot, those texts that lend themselves. And certainly informational texts can be part of that. Thanks, Tim. I mean, we, we talked about this earlier um, that, you know, the evidence base is is quite strong, well known in those kind of earlier years, elementary years. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about developing fluency in the in the secondary classroom, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what are the things we need to consider there? You know, is it worth spending your time as a classroom teacher on fluency strategies? Um, and if so, why? Yeah, um, Jean Chaw, one of our leading researchers here, you know, she passed away now, but she wrote about stages of reading development, and she identified uh, stage two as the fluency stage. And stage two in her model was uh, ages six and seven. Yeah, so, you know, in, in an ideal world, fluency would be uh, something that is primarily developed in those primary, primary grades, uh, ages uh, five through eight, eight, five through 10, and so on. But the problem is 
once students leave here in the States, uh, say fourth through fifth grade, and, and they're not fluent readers, they don't automatically become fluent. You know, it becomes something that uh, stays with them. Uh, and we see this all the time. Our, our high schools here in the U.S. are filled with many students who struggle in fluency. Now it shows up as, co- as a comprehension problem. But when you take a closer look at these students, you know, they're the slow, full of effort readers. They know enthusiasm in their oral reading. And, and, and so we need to address that. Now, the problem is that we have not done a very good job, at least here in the United States, of helping our secondary teachers, our secondary reading specialists understand that fluency is important in the secondary grades, uh, but it needs to be. We need to find, especially for those students who are struggling, uh, I, I'll bet you dollars to donuts that um, uh, take a look at these students and we're going to find fluency is a huge issue. Our, our reading clinic here at the university we work primarily with younger students, but you know we, we do have a fair number of uh, students who are uh, middle school, secondary school, uh, struggling in reading and almost to a person. Their problem is in the area of reading fluency. We work on fluency with these students, same kind, same methods. Uh, we have the students model, uh, modeling fluent reading, assisted reading, repeated reading. And what we find is almost immediately, not only do they improve fluency and comprehension, but even their motivation to read improves as well. Now, the key is to find material that is appropriate for students at the secondary level. We can't have children, you know, reciting nursery rhymes and such. And, 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 and what we find is actually quite, quite easy. Um, we have uh, found, uh, uh, for example, poetry. Uh, there's wonderful poetry that's that's available and appropriate for the secondary students uh, here in the United States. You know, Robert Frost, we, uh, um, Emily Dickinson, uh, Langston Hughes, uh, and and this is not material that students would find uh, demeaning for them. You know, it's something that it is challenging material that they would have to practice and perform. And there's there's I thought something nothing so satisfying as getting in front of uh, an audience and uh, performing. Um, say a poem that's you know intended for secondary even adult students, mm-hmm. and um, you know having that sense of accomplishment that you've done something that's worthwhile. There's so much in that, um, Tim. As, as a kind of ex English teacher, I'm thinking about Emily Dickinson. That's it's concise, but it's incredibly dense, challenging poetry, isn't it? So in many ways, that really affords you a great opportunity for prosody and for fluency development because even her use of quite unique use of punctuation um, offers you opportunities and offers you that bridge to comprehension. Well, yeah, Alec, excuse me for interrupting, but yeah, you make a great point there. One of the other aspects of fluency is reading in chunks, reading in phrases. Uh, You know, if you think about it, the the hallmark of a disfluent reader is somebody who reads in that word by word manner. Good readers read in phrases or chunks. Uh, And Again, if you think about it, poetry really lends itself to that analysis of a text uh, to be read in in phrases, in in and in chunks, and so on. And as you said, with good good uh, com- with good uh, prosody or good expression. One of my favorite poets, by the way, is Robert Service. Um, he's a Scot who went to Canada and wrote about uh, oh the turn of the century, the last turn of the century, eighteen hundreds or so. Uh, wrote about um, uh, the Yukon, and one of my favorite poems is The Cremation of Sam McGee. Perhaps you know that one. It's a narrative poem, 
but I, I find that middle grade and high school students just love it. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The Northern Lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake LaBarge. I cremated Sam McGee. <laughs> and it goes on. It's a, it's, it's a narrative poem. But uh, again, uh, when students have that opportunity to master a text like that, it's, you know, they've actually accomplished something that's worthwhile. It's not simply, a, oh, I can read this as fast as I can. I, I, I can express the words of Robert Service in, in, uh, in a poetic manner. I think tacitly there's implications here for teachers' knowledge and curriculum development and text knowledge and 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 across the curriculum. In secondary school, you've got disciplinary literacy, you know, the different informational texts. And I think we go back to some of your first points about defining what reading is and understanding the science of reading being so crucial. I, I've just got one question, and this is again about um, high school, secondary school students. So in the UK, there's a... Um, an emerging practice, one of the kind of you know changes of habits that seems to happen every few years in schools. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them that's really common at the moment is drop everything and listen. So it's effectively, it's the teacher or, or their tutor um, reading aloud, chunk of time, uninterrupted, 10 minutes, you know, performing, just as you have here. And that seems to be taking off um, and becoming kind of renew, a renewed energy around that but could you talk about so the benefits of that the, what, what you think the evidence might indicate but also perhaps some of the challenges there because sometimes the the listening comprehension of pupils might be a barrier here mind it mm-hmm. I, I think uh, yeah I've, I've read some of that work and as you mentioned a lot of it is coming out of the UK where you know the, the argument has been when we have students read something we we chunk it up into so many little pieces that they lose sight of the entire text itself. So um, it, it seems to make sense that that opportunity for, for students to, to listen to a teacher read fluently is, it really has some value. Um, the one thing I would add to that though is while listening, why not have the students have the text in front of them themselves so they can follow along. So as they're reading along silently, they could hear the teacher's voice reading that expressive manner. Um, because, you know, when you're simply listening, of course, that's, that's important for language comprehension, but you're not reading. And I want to get students to do both of those, uh, tasks, uh, read the text and also comprehend, uh, the message that the author is providing. My final question, which is about a practice that we see happening every day and perhaps is a bit implicit for a lot of teachers. They don't quite think about it so much where they ask pupils to read aloud from it could be a textbook it could be you know the poem etc regardless mm-hmm. of, of the curriculum area um but that fluent that pupil is disfluent and and that robotic kind of word word for word and and that might hamper other people's comprehension what are your perspectives around that and, and given the vast expertise you have what would some of your tips be for teachers in terms of trying to navigate that challenge yeah, I actually wrote a book years ago. It's called Goodbye Round Robin Reading. We call that here in the States Round Robin, yeah. where the teacher chooses one student at a time to read orally. And as you said, Alex, um, those students are not very good readers. It's just a chance for them to demonstrate their lack of competency in reading, which nobody wants that to happen. Um, my rule of thumb is this. If you're ever going to ask students to read something orally, you need to give them a chance to rehearse. Uh, we, we, that's a, you know the simple... Um, privilege we would we would give each other uh, to that opportunity to practice. This 
lecture we're doing right now, this podcast, you know, you were, you were gracious enough to send me some of your questions in advance. So I had a chance to think of, think it over. So I have no problem with oral reading. Some teachers say we want to get kids out of oral reading as quickly as possible. And I think there's a place for oral reading. But the key is to give the opportunity to rehearse uh, before you do that, uh, whether it's, you know, reading a, a story in segments or reading a poem, whatever. Um, that notion of rehearsal or repeated reading fits right into that. So that's my rule of thumb. And, you know, and I'll just add on to this, you know, here in the States, we've kind of got this idea that we want to move students out of oral reading as quickly as possible because most of the reading we do as adults is silent reading. But if you think about it, there are texts that are meant to be read orally, meant to be read, performed. Again, I'm going, I'm kind of repeating myself, but things such as poetry, uh, narrative to some extent, uh, 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 short plays and, and such, these are meant to be read out loud. So uh, let's find those kinds of materials that are meant to be read orally and really emphasize those in an artistic way with our, with our students. So we're, we, you know, we, we do combine the art and the science of teaching reading. That's great. I, and just to, I think, summarise, and, and on behalf of, of both Sarah and myself, just a big thank you. I think um, the award for being one of the top scientists beyond reading as, as well as reading, um, that's why you're able in short time to just share so many brilliant insights that are so practical. Thank you so much, Tim, for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My, my, my honour. Thank you. I'm really pleased following Tim's interview to speak to a colleague uh, based in schools in England. We're, we're back over this side of the water now. Um, I'm going to speak to Julie Fazy. And Julie, can you explain a bit about yourself and your background and, and then we'll get cracking? Uh, yes. Hello. Nice to meet you. Um, I've been a head teacher of a small Northumberland primary school since last January. We've got about 130 pupils. Uh, before that, I worked as a director of teaching and learning for the WISE Academy Trust, where I worked across all 12 schools, um, supporting teachers with English, primarily reading and writing. And before that, I worked in one of our Newcastle schools as initially the literacy lead year six teacher, assistant head teacher, and then deputy head teacher. Great. And we've, we've had really strong representation from the Northeast. So on the last podcast, this podcast, uh, so that's good. It doesn't always happen. Um, and and in terms of representation, what we want to talk about, about your school and your setting and, and actually the relevance of reading fluency for children in your school. So could you tell us a little bit more about why the likes of reading fluency, you know, that kind of our updated recommendation to why that's relevant for, for the children that you teach and lead? I think particularly our focus um, kind of came about actually following the 2019 SATs. And I know not everything should be SATs related, but it was kind of evident that that was a really difficult paper for a lot of our children. So it made us very reflective as to, well, what can we what can we do to further support our children with this? You know, there's obviously something that our children are struggling with. Um, so it was right back then that we actually devised what we call wise reading which is an approach to reading that we have throughout Key Stage 2 and some in Key Stage 1, depending how they are with their phonics at that time. And it has a huge focus on fluency and the idea of fluent readers. We we did some things wrong initially, which I can talk to you about in more detail, but it's that journey, isn't it? And like I say, it's that the idea of, it really is that the more fluent children become, the less 
the brain has to comprehend, if you like, isn't it? You know, as a, a year six teacher for a long time, watching children cry in their sats because they were just so overloaded with the content that they had to read and actually understanding it was a really stressful thing as a practitioner to watch children in that position. So, you know, the more focus that we can put on fluency, the more fluent children become, then actually it is that cognitive overload, isn't it, that, that we want to really to try and relieve. Obviously, our job is always to get the children as ready for secondary school as, as possible. We know the demands of sort of reading in the in the secondary curriculum as well. So again, it's for us. And again, we're on this journey. So it's about not just fluent in our sort of English curriculum. We actually focus on fluency right across. We read a lot of non-fiction texts in our foundation subjects as well, because again, it's about exposing the children um, to as many ambitious, you know, kind of, um, factual texts as well as, as possible to ensure that they are fluent readers and let's say that doesn't just mean fast readers as we learned in the early days uh, but really about them understanding what what being a fluent reader is as well. Yeah th there's something there you described the likes of the SATs which they're not everything but they're really obvious to us they're salient and things stick out if pupils can't read within you know, that, that pressured environment. And th there is a reality of, of pace and being able to read with comprehension quite quickly. Uh, but, but I like how you pointed out that kind of pace isn't everything. I think that might be a theme of the podcast in terms of understanding fluency, what it is and what it isn't just. Um, I'm interested. So you talked about um, the increase in informational text, kind of factual text, and then in foundation subjects. Was that a shift from where where reading was located in the school day, if you like, kind of reading as part of English. Do you think it's now kind of throughout the school day, throughout the curriculum in a different way than it was before? Definitely, definitely for us um, here, because let's say particularly we always have our designated reading lessons in the morning. You know, reading usually would be a part of the literacy lesson as well. And then that was probably it until you kind of got to the reading for pleasure time in the afternoon which we do sort of dedicate time to as well but actually now the shift particularly for our humanities and our science um is very much a, a reading heavy almost you know we do have to be conscious of that it is such an ambitious text of how do our SEND children access that reading material and we look at that in the same way that we look at a lot of things in our reading wise is that a lot of it is the teacher read so again it's the the children sort of follow along but actually that they're sort of ingesting and still taking that information from sort of the models that we use within our reading lessons in the morning as well. But like I say the children are actually much, much more confident. We've only been doing this new curriculum sort of a, a year and a half in, but actually they're, they're understanding. And even sometimes it's their attitude as well, isn't it? It's their approach to a text that can often frighten them. So, you know, the more exposure that we give them to these high level, you know, subject specific vocabulary texts, the more they're able to embrace it as well, I think. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. It's really interesting listening to you talk about that, um, Julie. I wonder, you know, if there was a visitor that came into your school and came and, you know, went into one of those lessons, what would it look like to them? What kind of features would there be? You know, we know about the oral reading instruction and the importance of teacher modelling, you know, what would be in that classroom? Um, so hopefully you would see some strategies in there. So we do. And I always get this the wrong way around. I can't remember what it is. So it's either magnet eye, magic finger or magic eye, magnet finger. I can't remember which one it is. But that is a, that the children know right from when, you know, when we do phonics. So we have that approach all the way through. And it is it's that following along 
um, that we do. You might also see jumpings because I'm not saying that children don't follow along, but sometimes they might get distracted. And that's just a really nice, quick way for the teacher to know. So the teacher would stop talking at a certain point and the children would be expected to jump in and carry on sort of from where the, where the teacher had, had read. You would expect all the children to be, let's say, have the text in front of them. Often it would also be projected on the board as well, you know, so the teacher sort of showing the children how she's modeling and accessing the text. And quite a lot, it's then just, again, it's not just about reading, is it? Particularly in the afternoon, it's reading to learn, which I think is that real key. So the children aren't just reading anymore. They know that the information that they're going to need at some point is in there. So it's really, again, about sort of the teacher. You know, I think the teachers are exhausted. When we first introduced this and we did medieval monarchs in history, the teacher said, my knowledge now of history is, is more than I've ever known before. So, but I'm absolutely exhausted. So actually, that you know, the teacher input into the lesson as well is is really important. Um, but let's say it'll be the children just immersed in in knowledge. I think for us is a is a real driver of actually that knowledge rich curriculum. And we know that from the reading that the children are doing, that actually their knowledge is like it's never been it's never been before. And in that way, we are then hoping that we are then preparing them again for the demands of of the secondary curriculum as well as best we can. How have you supported your staff in getting to that point then, Julie? You know, you talked about, you know, there have been lessons learned along the way as well, you know, from experience working in the schools across your trust. You know, how have you got your teachers to that point of, of expertise? Uh, a lot of CPD. So a lot of it is um, myself and my colleague Stella as well. So we initially sat down and sort of wrote Reading Wise together with some um, of our sort of our CEO and, and and people like that as well, and sort of really came together at the table and really thought about, well, what is it that our children need? So that was kind of our starting point. And from there, we then started to deliver that CPD, and it was that making it clear to all of the schools that this was the, the expectation. So it was the supportive materials that we put in place. And for us as well, it's that clear idea of the implementation process as well. It wasn't just putting something out there and not doing any any follow-up and again it was about us sort of reflecting as we went through and then providing that CPD at regular sort of intervals as we went through to keep improving our practice you know to make sure that we were doing and listening to feedback as well you know when I was talking before about the we initially introduced fluency checks and in our first in our first model where the children would read to a partner for a minute I've never heard children read so quickly in all of my life because it was just like a train they just were desperate to read 300 words a minute which was really un unfeasible and we hadn't noticed you know when we implemented it thought that that would be a problem so again you know it was taking the feedback from the staff listening to what they were saying on the ground you know we love this this isn't working and so again it's been that all the way through of actually and then making sure that the CPD reflects the emerging needs of the school as well you know you can put something out there everybody do this but then the different teachers are going to come back and need different things so before I was the head teacher, it was that that um, my colleague and I would regularly revisit the individual schools as well to make sure that, you know, all of the teachers there were supportive, offering training to new teachers who came in to the trust. Because when you suddenly think, oh, I'm, I'm being told how to teach reading in a, in a two week cycle, you know, and so it was ensuring that everybody was of the same of the same understanding of the approach that we were putting into place. And we're now going to move on um, to hear from Louise Quinn, who actually, um, as stated, is also from the northeast. It's a, a real strong um, Geordie Northumberland contingent. Um, and Louise is also from Julie's same trust. But that emphasis on secondary. 
I'm really pleased to invite Louise Quinn um, to the podcast. Um, and Louise, I'll, I'll just open it up to you to introduce yourself and, th and then we'll get going talking about the relevance of reading and reading fluency. Right. So hi, Alex. Thanks very much for the, um, the invitation as well. So my name's Louise Quinn. I'm a, um, a deputy head teacher um, in the Northeast Learning Trust. I was a former director of Shot and Hall Research School. And my responsibility in school is primarily to lead on the quality of education, disciplinary literacy and teaching and learning. So I'm responsible for both the sequencing and the, the intent of the curriculum, as well as how it's implemented in the classroom. Right. So you mentioned their disciplinary literacy and, and, and that appears in the um, EF guidance report for secondary schools. And, and you've got a secondary school background and um, we are going to talk about. Uh, reading fluency which is often attributed to young children and it's seen as a thing for young children and it features prominently in our update for improving literacy at key stage two can you just talk to us about your understanding and of the relevance of reading fluency and particularly perhaps this this perception at secondary school that that's done earlier with young children well, I think the first thing to point out is that reading fluency or fluency reading um, supports reading comprehension. And remember, to comprehend a text is, is the ultimate goal of, um, of reading it. So the recommendation is absolutely vital for secondary schools, because what we do know is that the curriculum is mediated primarily through texts and um, academic language. I think oh, yeah. after two bouts of school closures, the updated guidance is both timely and incredibly appropriate. Uh, particularly because, as we know, that students have missed out on that vital fluency practice due to the variability and constraints in different home environments. That includes the home reading environment as well as their exposure to, um, to rich talk. Thanks, Louise. Um, interesting you're talking there about kind of that understanding uh, of fluency, the relevance. Um, I remember about five or six years ago when oracy was starting mm -hmm. to be talked about in schools. And I vividly remember having a conversation with my head teacher at the time. I said to him, I said, I think we should really start to think about oracy. And he looked at me blankly as if to say, what? What, what even is that word? And I think fluency in some ways is similar if you were to kind of go into secondary schools up and down the country now, what do you think their current understanding of fluency would be? I think in secondary schools, if I'm completely honest, and I think we have to be honest about that, I think the understanding of reading fluency is actually quite limited. Um, I think we focused on other areas in, in secondary, such as the explicit, uh, such as explicit vocabulary instruction, such as I think oracy, we, you know, and that understanding that sort of language underpins all literacy development is becoming increasingly well known. Fluency, less so. Um, I think we have to establish, first of all, what reading fluency is um, and how it can be described as a bridge between word recognition and comprehension. I think it's important to understand that fluency in itself will not lead to, uh, it's not a means to an end for reading comprehension and that the two are actually a reciprocal process. So the more we comprehend, the more fluently we read and the more fluent we are at reading, the better, the better served we are or the better suited we are to, um, to comprehend what we read. Um, it's often assumed, I think, at secondary that 
fluency is a skill that's mastered at primary school um, and that is definitely not the case um, and it is definitely not the case given two bouts of school closures as well and um, that for many children that can't have been um, mastered but we also need to understand that it's a real barrier it's a real barrier to our uh, pupils in, sec in the secondary environment um, it's really really important reading fluency because essentially it's the it's the vehicle for strengthening literacy in schools or one of the vehicles to strengthen that because it enables us to access much more complex language across the curriculum. Yeah, I think I think the more I think about fluency in the secondary curriculum, I'm thinking about, like you say, strengthening that transition mm -hmm. process. And it's almost like, yeah, most students are going to come to secondary school having got to a, a, a fluent level of reading, aren't they? At, mm -hmm. You know, a basic level, that entry level. But when they start to encounter that more kind of academic language, the complexities, the vocabulary across the curriculum, lots of different teachers who, like you, you said before, may, may or may not have had that like kind of literacy input professional development wise. Suddenly they have to learn how to become fluent in almost like a new language, don't they? Well, um, sorry, Sarah. Yeah, they do. Well, and I think I think the other thing that we have to remember about the, the majority um of the texts that students study in primary school are actually fiction based as well. Whereas when we transition transition to the secondary curriculum, actually the majority of the curriculum is mediated through nonfiction, nonfiction texts. And with that become, comes its own sort of um, challenges. So for example, awareness um, of text structures, sentence structures, um, sort of the level of language, etc. Use the purpose of different texts. So it's a whole unique set of um, of challenges that we're that we're facing as well. Absolutely, and I think I think there's two ways of looking at, at fluency, isn't there? One is there's always going to be struggling readers who require that additional support beyond the classroom, and there will be programs that schools will adopt to develop that fluency. But I'm thinking about kind of whole, the whole class reading now in the secondary classroom. Um, and how fluency and oral reading instruction has the kind of the power to kind of transform that for us, really. What are your thoughts around that? What you know, I'm thinking of like reading aloud programs and 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 subject reading. You know, what are your thoughts and reflections around that? Well, I think first of all, we need to be aware of the data, etc., that we're using because we need to establish. I think you call it, Alex, a ready reckoner. Um, in the work that you did um, with, with Tom Sherrington, for example. Um, so the Goldilocks yeah. principle is really, really important. We need to identify the right bit of text for repeated reading, which is one of the, um, the big examples, the, the most well-known strategies um, within the classroom. And when we think about the Goldilocks principle, the text has to be just right. Um, we can go, so we need an awareness of reading ages there. Um, and we can go above the reading age if we're explicitly teaching that, um, that text, but we need to think quite carefully about the, how we're going to mediate the level of difficulty um, with that text. Once we've decided on the text itself, decided on the passage, so i.e. A, a sentence or a, or a paragraph, for example, from an academic text, then we can use strategies such as guided oral reading instruction. Now, that's absolutely key because that's where, as a teacher, we model fluent reading. So the teacher's there as a highly skilled model of, of, of fluent reading. Um, and we need to think about, for example, how we um, 
how we read the volume at which we read that text, the, the volume or pace that we read the text, the speed that we read the text, where we where we stress any example where the uh, our use of intonation as well. And we need to read that fluently to the class as a whole. Then what we can do is that there are there are different ways that that students can engage in um, in guided reading instruction. So, for example, we've identified a passage of the text, we've identified a paragraph, we've modelled that, and I'll talk about modelling later on. We've modelled that, we've become that model of fluent reading. Then we might get the students to engage in what we call repeated reading. Repeated reading is where they reread that short and, and meaningful passage a set number of times until they're attempting to mimic the teacher or echo the teacher and their reading of it until they've reached a suitable level of fluency. That is often three times plus. Then we have, for example, we could use um, choral, choral reading, Sarah, as well. Choral reading is where the students read alongside the teacher in unison. So they repeat that passage back, reading it in unison. Other ways that we can do that is sort of paired reading. So we can obviously put our students into pairs, pair A and pair B. Um, and what that does, so the teacher would still read the passage and then in their pairs they would practice because practice is key when it comes to, um, to reading fluency. It's important um, at that point that we sort of share the pairs out. So we change the pairs regularly because part of that process is for partner A to give partner B feedback and vice versa on their, on their reading fluency. Now, some students will be better at giving feedback than others, which is important, why, which is why it's important that we should sort of change the pairs quite regularly. Another um, method that we can use is something called read and record. And that's something that we're starting to bring in alongside um, our Reading for Pleasure programme in school at the moment, which is just simply where students read and record um, their, uh, their reading on, on, on a shared, on a device such as a phone, et cetera. That can then be assessed by the teacher or sort of assessed by the student or their reading pairs. Paired reading is when students in pairs, obviously, read alternate sentences or passages from the text. They repeat the sentences after their partners read them, and then they give one another feedback. This supports them to assess their, the fluency of one another. And it also offers a metacognitive support to improve their own reading fluency. The premise of pairs is, is really, really important here because by working as pairs rather than individuals, so a, a traditional method might be teacher reads, then pupil reads, pupil A reads, teacher B, then pupil B reads, teacher C, pupil C seeds, reads, pupil D reads. What we get is more practice here and practice is absolutely key for, for fluency by working in pairs. So the more practice we can get, Usually it would be 30 minutes. The evidence recommends that it's 30 minutes uh, practice per week. Then we're going to get what I would term more bang for our book here. And it's all about the leverage of, uh, of individual strategies. So just a bit, something you mentioned um, earlier on, Louise, was about professional development and that being necessary. And I can't help but think you've just described some really effective practices in the classroom 
but also a group of practices. And, and whenever we're considering, you know, kind of high quality teaching, we're thinking about how many habits teachers need to tweak and adapt and they need to understand fluency and then practice it. And, and when it doesn't quite work, adapt it. What are your thoughts on the, the necessity for professional development and particularly for secondary school teachers? And we started again by saying they mightn't have, have strong knowledge in this area or strong confidence. I think it's absolutely vital. I think effective professional development is, is is absolutely vital here. And I think the issue that we have is, you know, we all want to help, don't we? We all want to do the right things. And sometimes that can lead us to rush, rush into things. Um, I think that part of that professional development programme should really, really be devoted to the science of reading. And, you know, reading is a highly complex composite skill that is broken down into its many, many, um, constituent component part and I think we need a shared model of reading so in schools we need a shared model of reading in our heads so for example we could use you know thinking about the the recent key stage two guidance report we could look at the reading house only when we are sort of well versed in the in the science of reading should we begin to actually focus on on the practice of um, of reading fluency um, and I think the point is here that we share different examples, share different evidence-informed examples, share things that are light on workload as well, so they can be easily implemented. But for me, some, as somebody who leads um, teaching and learning and CPD at school, we should, we should ground them in the subject discipline wherever possible. So part of that, um, part of that process should be, you know, whether that be something like giving 20 or 30 minutes from a CPD session to actually think about, right, what am I doing next week? How can I do that really well? And if it's relevant, how can I plan to incorporate this strategy well into, into my teaching? It just remains for me to say thank you for listening to another episode of Evident Into Action, the EEF podcast. Do press subscribe. Our next upcoming podcast is again focused on literacy, where we'll speak to Professor Kate Kane about the Reading Comprehension House and dig a little further into the intricacies of reading to support pupils to learn and to develop their reading. Thank you for listening.